Welcome back to Stories Behind the Grind. Listen to my conversation with Jared Doyle, founder of Fractal, and whose mission is to help innovators, creators, and dreamers find their market and deliver to those that will benefit from their products and services. Jared is a seasoned marketer with 20 years experience and founder of three previous startups. Uh, so Jared, thanks so much for coming on the, uh, the show, the Stories Behind the Grind uh, podcast. You're a uh, veteran in the marketing industry, having more, more than 20 years experience a three-time startup founder yourself, and you currently look after startups from minimum viable product stage up to having millions of users. Now, tell me, for those founders wondering whether to outsource or to do their marketing in-house, what would be your advice? Oh, well, I mean, first of all, I turn 40 next week, so I guess you can call me a veteran and I'll let you get away with it. But um, <laughs> my advice to founders is, look, I don't think you can outsource, especially when it's a startup company, you can't afford to outsource. That's a fundamental aspect of your whole business, such as marketing. So to outsource that is almost to say, I can't kind of solve it myself, so I'll just let somebody else solve that problem. Marketing is your voice to the company. You know, marketing and sales is, what, is how you communicate your product to your potential customers. So to outsource that just feels like almost like an admission of failure. In that being said, though, I think... At the same time as a founder, you've got to be nimble and, I guess, honest with yourself and say, okay, I don't know the technical side. So what you want to outsource is the input of skills. So you want to understand what the best practices are. You want to understand, you know, how people come in and advise you on how to do SEO or paid search or social or TV or PR or whatever it happens to be. But you've got to be doing that execution yourself and you've got to be deeply involved in it. Otherwise, you lose, your brand doesn't sort of build up a voice. So... Yeah, like it's, it's a yes and no question, right? Don't outsource everything and you make it someone else's problem. But at the same time, please don't try to learn all of marketing when you're actually a programmer at heart or you're a product manager. There's plenty of experts out there that'll help you. Right. So, so it's really a case of sort of playing to your strengths, retaining enough so that you keep the the ethos and the brand of, of your of your startup or, or business. And you're not outsourcing that aspect of it all. Is, is that, is that, that yeah. right? I mean, look, as a startup business, you know, one of your primary objectives is to go out there and try to find your customers and not just find them, but also find what message resonates with them, what aspect of your product or your service resonates with those guys. So, you know, you have to be there. You have to be feeling each customer's reaction. You want to be engaging with them. You want to be trying different copy to try to work out what resonates. And it's in that act that you kind of discover, okay, well, I may have conceived the company with an idea of what I was going to do and what my product and service was going to provide to customers. But, you know, like any good startup, you've got to be willing to pivot. And one of the ways that you tend to get information back on how you pivot and where you should be pivoting to is through your marketing and sales and your customer support. So, look, I think you've got absolutely got to be touching it at all levels. But, yeah, the, the, the trick is to bring in experts rather than trying to learn it yourself for the individual techniques. So, you know, you, you don't try to do paid search yourself. You get an expert to come in and get stuff set up. But whatever you do, don't just sort of set it up and pass, you know, pay someone's monthly invoice and hope that it works because it's just never going to work for your company in the long run. Yeah, sort of ho- hope is not the right strategy, is it? You've, you've re- you really yeah. got to um, be sort of tactful and, and strategic in, in what you do and, and, and the approach you take. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of where growth hacking and the new sort of discipline of growth hacking really come from. It's, it's actually quite, it's not actually hacking in the sense of like illegal computer hackers. And it's sort of sometimes people assume it's got a negative connotation, but it's really down to just being nimble, but also being scientific. So it's this idea that everything you do, you've got a hunch and then you say, okay, I think if I do A, X might be the result. And then you test it. You test it as quickly as you can, as fast as you can, and you know you learn from the responses that you get back. So you, you want to be really scientific. You want to be sort of you know really stealth in the way that you do it. But yeah, growth hacking for me represents what most founders find themselves doing, whether they believe it or not. And the exciting thing is that it's been growth hacking is, is a quasi discipline has been around for long enough now that there's starting to become some standard practices and processes that any kind of business owner or founder can apply. It doesn't just need to be a tech company. It could be any company. But that idea of um, it's taking things that we've always done, like you can wind the clock right back and think about things like you know dropping flyers and brochures into letterboxes. When that was done, your standard split test was to put two different phone numbers on it. So you put a different heading, a different sale price, whatever it might be. You put two different phone numbers and you track the two phone numbers and whichever one gets more calls, more sales that's the, that's the model that works well that's all growth hacking is it's just that 
there's now a discipline built around it. And with the advent of the internet and all technology, we can do a lot more tests a lot more quickly um, and get to sort of, I guess, a solution more rapidly than waiting a few weeks for the phone to ring. You mentioned that there's sort of standard um, standard practices in growth hacking. Can you share any with, with the audience? Yeah. So, I mean, look, the, the, there's, a, there's a basic process. Caught me on the hops. I'll see how well my memory works here. I mean, the, the first thing you do is ideation. So the first step is to sit around. This is the fun bit, right? This is where you sit around and no idea is a bad idea. Everyone throws it in until you realize some ideas are absolutely terrible. But you, you um, you know, you, you throw all your marketing ideas in there and you say, oh, well, I think we should try this and we should try this price or this strategy or this headline, whatever it happens to be. And then once you've collected all the ideas into a, into a spreadsheet or whatever, however you're going to store them, you sit around and you give everything a score. And so you, you weight everything. And the simplest way the simplest sort of scoring algorithm that I like to use is called ICE, which is ICE, so an acronym, makes it nice and easy to remember. So I remember ICE and I remember what each letter stands for, but you're basically looking to measure the I, which is impact, C, which is the confidence of your idea, and then E represents the effort. So what you're trying to do is score everything out of 10 and then multiply them all together. So you might come up with an idea that has a really, so typically these things work against each other, so you might have something go, if this works, it's going to be huge. And so the impact might be 9 out of 10. But your confidence, typically, because it's got such a big impact, might be a lot lower. And then you've got to decide on the ease or, or effort of doing that. So that idea is, well, if it's really easy to do, well, let's just try it. So it might be 10 out of 10, like it's just super simple. Or it might take three or four months of product development, in which case it's hard. What you get at the end, if you average those three scores out, is an average score out of 10, and that's your highest confidence level. And what you should be doing is taking the highest score and that's the thing you should be doing first because you should have the, the best combination of impact, confidence and, and effort that you need to um, put into it. Then after that, you know, you need to design the test. So you basically decide what, you know, what, do I, what am I trying to prove and how am I going to measure that and what do I expect is going to happen. And once you've defined that, so you've actually got a scientific approach, you make sure you launch the campaign, you strip off every single element that is not fundamentally answering that question and this and this is probably one of the most important parts because you know as a as a business owner as a, as a product guy whatever it happens to be you, you tend to get totally caught up in the, the building and the development phase of, of marketing and your product and your service but the idea of growth hacking is that if any effort you need to put into this test that isn't exactly answering the question you've got on the paper you have to throw it away and what that often means is you often test products you haven't even built so you can um you can launch a whole product or a concept and you may not have it. So you could be, I don't know, like a soft drink company and you could sell cans of, you know, the idea of trying to sell cans of Coke that were clear. Now, you could, if you were going to fake it, you wouldn't do it to the real brand, but the idea is you put it out there and you see how people respond to ads. You put advertising up there, you know, you advertise Vegemite in chocolate and you see how badly people react to it. If it's got a big, it's got a bad reaction, you don't actually build the product. It never really existed. Um, and then the final phase is just to, um, to measure everything and report on it, look at the, an the analysis, the analytics, and decide what the outcome is. And then you've got to make a decision. You put that idea back into the pot as an, as an idea, and you either pivot, develop it, change it, drop it, or even double down on it. And so it's like this loop of this process loop that you go through. Um, and the idea is you start doing one. If you get good at this, you should be running two, three, four tests. And it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't have to be a tech business. Any business should be able to apply this process to what they're doing, test and learn, test and learn, and that's the best way you're going to grow your business. That's great advice. I mean, it's okay to to do all this research about having an idea, but it's really about the doing and the testing and um, seeing what other people think of it. Yeah, you, you, don't, you, you, don't you, to, you need that you feedback. You need to do you? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, a, a theorizing, you can only really, really do it to a point, and then really it's how the market reacts to it, and then where you go from there. Exactly. It's about, it's about being nimble, about being quick. And look, generally speaking, the faster you are, the less money you lose, right? There's nothing worse than being in stealth mode for six months, popping up into the market, and then the market tells you that it's terrible. You think, well, I've wasted six months. Could I have actually tested this thesis earlier? Almost always the answer is yes. Mm. So a big part of what I do is, you know, and, and look, you know, to be totally clear, I mean, I've, like you said at the, in the intro, I founded three companies. Every single time I have massively overinvested into ideas that I could have tested faster. You know, I kind of wish I could have mentored myself when I was back. Ideas of, oh, we'll do it like this. And you go through this massive product development. We build panels and admins or whatever it happens to be. And then no one uses it. And you think, well, I mean, I asked if people wanted it. There's, 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 a, there's a great thing where 
customers or clients will often fob you off with features. And so I don't know, you can kind of call it like a feature fob off. And that's where rather than just tell you, no, I would never pay and use it, they always sort of throw in, oh, it'd be great if you could do this. And you run away diligently and build the product or the feature they suggest in some weird, and you kind of think, oh, I could do that, they'll buy it. And they never would. Like they're, they're basically trying to find rational reasons to explain why their sort of primal brain has said, no, I don't want to do this deal. And there could be a lot of different reasons. But they're applying, they're trying to apply rational logic to it. You're trying to rationally apply, you know, answer their queries. Mm. And the whole time it's never going to work. I probably spent six months with my third company chasing down, adding features that customers who didn't pay any money were asking for. You'd go back to them and they'd go, that's great. Still didn't pay. So (laughs) I I think don't build things, test it um, and save that money. Like, you know, if you get a great response, at least you've got the confidence of building it knowing, yeah, okay, people are really going to buy this. And is it all, is it, I mean, testing the idea, is it, is it about just doing market research? Is it about trying to get your idea out there through, through ads? Are there, are there other ways to do it? Look, I mean, consumer studies, that kind of stuff is great, but at the end, it costs money. They're never that accurate. My view is get out into the market, speak to people who are actually be paying you money, push them all the way to the limit. My, my ideal scenario is the idea of coming up, well, a better way of thinking of it is a bit like what the, the rise and rise of Kickstarter and the equivalents. You know, these are, in many ways, a classic growth hack because you're saying, hey, I've got this idea for a product. If I built it, would you buy it? Yes. Okay, we'll put your money down now. When I've done it, I'll give you a discount. That's a classic growth hack technique. So Kickstarter in itself is basically a platform for growth hackers. We come up with an idea, you pitch it out there, and people either buy it or they don't. If your Kickstarter doesn't take off, and look, um, there's, there's ways to optimize a Kickstarter campaign, but if it doesn't take off, well, aren't you glad you didn't spend your life savings developing a product that no one was actually going to buy? You know, and there's debates around the value of Kickstarter and how you, you know, take a company after that with all the obligations. But in its basic marketing element, it is um, growth hacking of a business idea. So if you think about that and you think about what growth Kickstarter and the like do, that, that's the best way to think about just get into market and try. Mm, try and fail, um, you know, try and learn, try and learn, try and learn. The, uh, yeah, yeah, I like I like learn much more than fail. Trying <laughs> to fail sounds negative. You didn't fail. You learned something. Mm. It might have been a painful lesson, but you still learned something. How important is it to learn lessons from failures? I mean, have, have you dealt with um, founders or startups or even in your own experience where you've repeated the same lesson over and over again or the, the same mistake over and over again before you've learned the lesson? Oh, look, yeah, even just for myself, you know, I've, I've made enough mistakes along the way. I, um, in many ways, it's the, the kind of the power behind me and what I'm doing working purely with startup companies is because you do make mistakes and, and you don't, there's two ways of taking that. You can either kind of get jaded about it or you can take and say, oh, I just don't want other people to make the same mistakes. And so, you know, you do go into these processes and you do look at founders and, and I, you know, I want them all to succeed because I, I've never worked with a startup company whose idea is, um, you know, to try to take something out of the economy, to try to to try to lessen the world. You know, there it's always some evangelical idea that will make the world a better place. And so I want to give them a chance. But what I don't want them to do is not have their idea get a, get its day in the sun, so to speak, because of mistakes that I've made previously. So for me, I take all mistakes and I've made heaps of mistakes. I take them all and I and I give them as part of I guess my service to startup founders is to say Look, you know, you hire me for marketing, but I'm more than happy to tell you my experiences around fundraising or company structures or shareholder agreements. And, and I'll caveat the entire way saying I'm not a lawyer. This isn't legal advice, but I can tell you my story and what happened to me. And that's that's way more powerful. Look, if a, if a lawyer says to you, you really shouldn't, you know, you, you're in a business with your business partner, you really shouldn't have a 50-50 shareholder agreement because you're going to reach a stalemate. You're like, oh, yeah, you said that, but we're best buddies. It's going to be fine. On the other hand, I tell exactly the same story and say, well, I was in the same situation and this is what happened. And they can kind of follow their journey and they go, yeah, that makes sense. Said, and then this is how it falls apart. And they go, oh, right, okay, that makes a lot more sense. That feels real. I'm going to take that advice on board. So I use my, I guess, failures, my bad decisions to, to help advise other founders. Look, the startup community generally is really good. If, you, um, if you're speaking to people inside the startup community, there's just there's the people that are good and there's the people that are kind of like, oh, I don't know who you are yet. And and it's a bit of a club. There's people that kind of, there's obviously there's influencers who have a lot more sway, but they tend to be, they tend to kind of circle the wagon, so to speak. And when you get outsiders coming in, 
they take a long time to warm up to them because I want to find out, like, what is your agenda here? Are you just trying to come in because you've seen money and you've heard about startups and you can't take a few companies for a ride? Or are you going to really pitch something in and help out and, and do the best by the founders? And what you'll find is over time, the people that are genuinely good, people that are, like, they've got founder interests at mind and they're trying to do better for the you know, startup community as a whole, the community will point you to the right people. So the referral market is huge. Whereas if you find yourself speaking to people who aren't really embedded in the community, you've got to ask yourself why. Like, what have they done? <laughs> or why aren't, why aren't people making referrals? So I think the, generally speaking, the startup community spends a lot of time trying to set rules and processes and procedures just to stop the sharks. You know, and this, we're not talking shark tank sharks. We're talking business sharks that just want to take advantage of people who are, you know, naive. But I think the community is really good. I think, you know, so my advice is, get deep into the community, find the people who are really there and then just take referrals because they're not going to refer you to somebody who's not honest and will have your best interests at heart. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing about being the uh, the referral network must be quite strong in the um, in the startup communities given the uh, that vetting process. I guess on my cynical view initially of anyone who sort of enters that enters the realm from, from the outside that hasn't been referred by anyone else. Yeah, look, it, is, it is really good and even... You know, I took a couple of years break out of the startup industry to kind of cool down after a failed startup and coming back into it, there's new people and they kind of look at you like, well, who are you and where have you been? And, and you kind of have to lay your credentials down. And then and even then they kind of look and go, well, we'll wait and see how you shape up. You know, <laughs> what are you here to do? What's your what's your agenda? So I think that's important. But it, interestingly for me, I've discovered in the last few months, more and more business owners or founders are starting to find me just generally and in making inbound inquiries. And when I looked at the people who have made inquiries and I didn't know they weren't referrals, so I think it works both ways, those founders tended to not work out so well with me, just they weren't in that same mindset. Whereas whenever I've had a founder refer to me from inside the industry, even if it doesn't work out, even if it's not a client, even you know the deal doesn't work out, it's always a good experience. So I think it works both ways. I think not only does the startup industry referral network work in so much as service providers like myself or accountants or lawyers or whatever it might be but it works the other way too with founders you know you need founders that are willing to learn founders that kind of have a i guess a positive agenda for why they're trying to create their company so i've only kind of really cottoned on to that myself in the last couple of weeks where i've realized i haven't actually ever had a cold call come in that i've gone that's a great business it's always been a referral so yeah i think it works both ways which is we talk about lessons learned i've, I've probably the only time i've ever had invoices that weren't paid out of We'll call it not spite, but you know, where they probably could have afforded it, where people have contacted me, you know, from outside of the circle, so to speak. Uh, you talked about the uh, the mindset of, of founders. Are there uh, key qualities that you find that the the more successful founders have, such as being um, being open minded? Yeah, well, look, being open minded is 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 crucial, right? So you want them to be open minded. You want them to be fierce absorbers of information, and you need them to be both near and far-sighted at the same time. So you want the person to be have unbelievably specific domain knowledge. You want them to be actually good at a range of skills. And at the same time, you need them to be a visionary and you need them to be a salesperson. So there's a, a lot of skills and it's really hard to get that. Um, you know, the best founders have both. The best founders are both great in the minutia and at the vision at the same time. And for most people, you tend to be you're definitely skewed and a lot of people are all one way or the other. So all long-term thinking, all strategy, but terrible at the detail. And a lot of people confess to that. Conversely, some people are just good at the here and now. I can deal with what's in front of me. I can put out fires. I can weed the garden, so to speak. But what I can't do, I haven't got that vision to look into the future and see where it's going to go. So near and far-sighted, you want the ability to be humble and, and, and sort of in your own knowledge and expertise and at the same time, that naturally flows on to then just sort of the hunger for information, that hunger to solve something. And then ultimately, you want a founder who has a passion around the problem, right? So if it's just an idea that you've got, you'll probably fall apart. But if you've got a real passion, if you're really driven to the, you know, to finding a solution to a particular problem, it doesn't actually matter how you solve it. It just matters that you solve the problem. Whereas someone who just thinks they've got an idea, they're not really trying to solve a problem. They see the problem as being a way to execute their idea. Um, and that reverse idea, that's pretty much like one of the best ways you can catch a founder that's never going to quite make it, where they've got an idea and they're finding a problem that fits their idea. Mm-hmm. What you want is a founder who, so I'll, I'll give you an example of working with a guy at the moment who's a vet. And so 
He's gone through veterinary school. He's graduated. He's been a vet. He's worked at the RSPCA. He cares about animals. So his solution is around animal welfare. And you just don't doubt that for a second. His idea might not be 100% right. He may have to change it a couple of times, but the end solution will still be better for pets. He's trying to make, you know, flea and tick medication better for pets. And so he'll find the solution for that. And it may totally change his idea, but he didn't come in with an idea of like a subscription business and then he kind of plugged it into pets. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, it, you know, you need the problem first and the solution second, not the solution first and the problem for that. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. I mean, I guess if you're locked into an idea, then you're never really going to change or adapt that idea. And you're going to hold on to that idea with um, dear life in a sense. Yeah, and look, and I've done this, right? So I, um, I I chased out particular ideas. I had my last business, Sippy here, you know, set up here in Brisbane. It was the way I kind of came back from the UK. I fiercely held on to this belief that what we needed to be selling to small business owners was the idea of loyalty because they didn't need new customers. They just needed, well, you needed to more look after existing customers and coming back more. That whole that whole concept of your most important thing are your existing customers. You can get more money out of those guys and bring in new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have this debate with clients, or your potential clients, all the time. And you'd say to them, you know, it's more important that you, you know, look after existing customers. You get more money out of those guys. You get them coming back than finding new customers. And, you know, ultimately I'd get them to agree. And then you'd sort of say, okay, can you pay for a loyalty-based service? Will we do that? No, but I will pay you for new customers. He said, they're looking going, but we just agreed that it was better that we keep your existing customers coming back more often. They go, yep, but I'm not going to pay for that. I probably for about six months stubbornly held firm on the belief and I might have been right, but it, it wasn't what I needed to sell. And once you change your mindset and you go, actually, I need to sell them new customers, um, they're like, okay, great. Now, how much money do you want? And you go, right. <laughs> I really needed to just check my ego at the door and, and focus on what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do with that business was bring technology and like marketing and loyalty-based services to small businesses that can't afford it. So the idea was to bring like equivalent of a velocity or a Qantas rewards mm-hmm. to small businesses that didn't have it and almost unionize them. And that was my inspiration. But I just kept losing track of that. And I was trying to, I was focusing on elements of it rather than listening to the feedback I got. And uh, six months when you've got a funded startup, kind of you know burns not only investors money but your equity as well pretty quickly so how did you so you what ended up happening to the um that business <laughs> it's um it's been merged twice since i got out of it so i think i've got less than one percent so there's a whole story behind how you can go from a hundred percent of a company down to one percent of a company yeah look i i i haven't i didn't do well out of it and i won't ever do well out of that business i still fundamentally believe there's a spot for my idea what i want what i wanted to achieve you know that was a bit of a failure and, and, and you know there's a lot of different reasons behind that and you know you learn a lot from that the other problem too was you know i think i really was searching for a business i was living in london i was very keen to get back to brisbane my daughter was due to start school, so I was like, let's get back to Brisbane. What do I need to do? Couldn't find a job, so I started a company. And I think I was searching more what company to create rather than a really passionate problem. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, you know, I've learned that in looking at myself. And, you know, that, that's why I haven't started another startup in the traditional sense. But what I do now with Fractal isn't a startup. It's a just normal consulting agency. But my passion is still around startups. And so this enables me to work with a lot of different startups and I enjoy that more. So if I can help 10, 11, 12 startups at any one point in time, I enjoy that so much more than doing one idea myself. So I kind of realized my idea was in the business and the startup and the marketing and not so much in just owning the business. So, you know, I've had to kind of really come to that realization myself and it's been fun. Like the minute you have that, you know, eureka moment, you go, this is what I want to do. You just go, okay, my job's fine now. You know, I'm not as stressed as I was. Yeah, because you, you sort of nailed down the um you know, the twenty percent of it, say what you were doing previously that you that you really enjoy and then make that the eighty percent of what you now do. Yeah, and look and, and classic founder problem, right? It's I'm good at marketing, good at product sort of conception and, and looking at the market and what I need to do, but you know, I'm coding, I'm doing pay slips and bas returns and annual reports and shareholder meetings and pitches. I don't mind the pitching so much, but all the things you have to do when you're a founder and CEO of a company you know, interviews, performance appraisals, I mean, you can do it, but that's not why I signed up. And the thing is, as as your company starts to grow, more and more of your time is spent doing these jobs that you just go, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. What I want to do is market the business. And you go, well, if, if you're entirely driven by the problem you're solving, 
that doesn't matter because every single job you do is driving further towards the problem. Whereas I was more driven around trying to solve the problem and the marketing, what I had to do. And so it became a job again. And that, you know, I still enjoyed it. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I love being CEO of a, comp- of a startup company way more than I do working for a known ad agency. But um, it wasn't the same as what I'm doing now. So, yeah, look, you know, when you find that, when you find exactly why you want to be doing something, it's almost like the blinkers come off and you go, oh, it's sunny outside. This is what I can do. I get, you know, you, you just, you get up every day and you get excited. So, you know, that's the fun I've got to do. I, I had a great call with a client today where we really thought about it and I was able to kind of come up with a different concept and how to position, take their whole business and proposition to market. And I mean, I just, the fact that I get to do that all the time, I, I kind of feel a bit spoiled really. So I've got friends that sort of connected to me on LinkedIn and they go, I have trouble following you, Joe, because everything you write is so positive. You're like, I'm loving my job. I'm loving my life. I'm like, yeah, but it took a long time to work that one out. I think it's it's rare to see someone that, that loves what they do, oh, which, which is which, which is why I think so many people gravitate towards it because it's, it's almost this sort of end state or this end place to be is it doing doing something that you you love doing. Yeah, I mean it's 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 the dream, right? But I think there's, I think you know, I look back at you know, I got quite depressed after I kind of finished my previous startup and then I went into agency land again and I you know just wasn't happy. Like I was doing marketing, but I wasn't happy. And you do, you sort of go, am I being selfish? You know, is it, is it really selfish to pursue something that you love? And then you think about it and you just go, you've got one life. No one ever, you know, you don't sit in your deathbed talking about jobs or salaries or bonuses or, you know, employees in the grind. And yet people seem to spend, you know, a ridiculous percentage of their day not happy. Mm. Um, and then they try to derive and they try to justify that unhappiness through material things. So it's like, oh, I'm doing this job and I'm an investment banker. And who really wants to be an investment banker? But I've got, you know, I've got a Mercedes, I've got a big car. And you think, well, still, it's all material. You know, the things you think about at the end of your life is the time you spent with the family, the things you did that bettered the world, you know, the lives you changed. And and in my life, I'm able to help founders and build those great connections and, and, and get that bond. And I do. Like, I, I really feel like I'm bonding with the founders. Well, that's great. You know, that's, um, look, it's, it's a level of professional friendship. I, I, you know, I think you do need to keep things separate. But it is very different to have a professional bond where you're in the trenches and doing it as opposed to sitting where you're walking in the same office. You just happen to sit next to somebody and you're doing it because you're all just in there for the same pay packet. Mm. You know, like, I'm in a spoiled position. I can say that now, but it's taken me a long time to work that one out. Yeah. And I think patience is key as well. Keeping, keeping that in mind as well. You know, I think a lot of people who come out of uni as well expect to get their dream job straight out of uni. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I think universities have got an amazing ability to make their undergrads feel so special and that they're going to be so needed and so wanted. And yet you see them come out with very little experience, very little real world experience. You go, wow, you've got a lot to learn. <laughs> you know, I, I used to always love it when I could get a, a graduate that had kind of been broken in by somebody else. I hated getting graduates fresh out of uni because they come with these amazing expectations of what's going to be given to them and how important they are. Mm. So look, uh, I um, it sort of reminds me. I've got a, I've got a bit of a bit of a pet peeve. So linking growth hacking and and um, and marketing and marketing graduates together. One of the things I can't stand is people who get into and call themselves growth hackers, and they believe that they can call themselves a growth hacker and just make up the rules as they go. So it's like I'm a growth hacker. I do it like this, and I'm breaking the rules, and I'm I'm, I'm designing, and I'm kind of and you think, well, you've got no marketing experience. How exactly are you breaking the rules? Because to be fair, to be a hacker, you have to actually know what the rules are to break them. In the same way as if you were a computer hacker, you know, I'm not going to get very far as a computer hacker because I can't program. So how could I possibly hack a system that I don't understand? And yet for marketing, there seems to be this sort of right that people can call themselves a social media marketing guru or a hacker without any formal training. So I like to sort of say to undergrads or recent graduates say, it's a process. You, you're learning the fundamentals, and at a certain point in your career, you'll be able to say, Do "You know what? I know enough now. Now I can bend the rules because I understand what can and can't be done." What drives me insane is the idea that people can call themselves even digital marketers and you know and growth hackers, social media marketing gurus, and you, well, you've got no fundamental experience. So you might feel like you're a social media guru. You might feel like you're a, a marketing influencer or an influencer for marketers, whatever it happens to be. But if you don't understand what marketing is, if you don't understand the function of marketing within a business, how could you possibly put yourself out there to be an expert? So it, it sort of 
grinds my gears, so to speak, that people are able to do that. So, you know, to what you said, you know, get out of uni, learn the discipline, learn the rules, and at a certain point you'll have the credentials, you'll have the right to be able to break them. I think doing it beforehand, uh, it's a little bit conceited. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's almost, I guess, lying. If you don't have the results to back it up, then it's hard to... I mean, you know, you can call yourself anything, but it's just a title, right? Yeah, yeah. And anyone can lay claim to these things. So there's this... I'm trying to think of what it is now, but it, there's this great I, I concept. I wish I remember what it was. So if I remember, I'll email you afterwards. You can add it as notes or something. But it's this concept that when you meet someone who's full of confidence, they're either... So like they, they present themselves being a guru. They're either at this blissful ignorance stage in their career where they, they're so unaware of what they don't know that they believe they know everything. And what's going to happen is really quickly afterwards they're about to discover all the things they don't know and their career is going to take a, their confidence is going to take a downward spiral. And then as it starts, as they start to realize all the things they don't know, they'll naturally learn it and then their, career, their experience or the confidence, sorry, will start to turn back up again. Mm-hmm. And it's when you reach that second peak of confidence when you've been exposed to all things you don't know that's the person you want to hire. So there's this great idea that you've got to, someone will present themselves as being an expert. You've got to decide, are you an expert because you're blissfully ignorant of all the things that you don't know? Or do you genuinely know everything you're putting yourself out there? And then it's sort of put out there as being this great test um, to the idea of when you're speaking to someone, they say, oh, I'm a, I'm a guru, I'm an expert, or whatever it happens to be. And there's no formal way to check that. Just try to judge and say, are you blissfully ignorant? Or are you actually genuinely, do you know enough to put yourself out there to be an expert? I think most of the time you'll find people are more blissfully ignorant than they'd like to believe. That's a, that's a really good sort of litmus test as well. Really good takeaway yeah. for the uh, for the audience. Oh, look, and it works across almost every discipline, right? Mm. So, mm. Um, well, the other way of visualizing it is if you can imagine that your knowledge in any particular area is a sphere or a circle, and that rep- and, and, the, and the volume of that circle represents how much knowledge you have on a, on a topic. And the circumference of that circle is kind of the edge. So that's the edge of your knowledge base. And so the diameter of the circle all around the circumference around the outside, that represents everything you don't know. And the irony is as you learn more, your circle gets bigger. But as your circle gets bigger, the diameter grows as well. And so what happens is the person who actually knows more, so their circle is actually bigger, the diameter of the circle is bigger, the circumference is bigger, so they're more aware of what they don't. And so that's the other way of thinking about it is if you have a really small knowledge base, it's really easy to go, oh, I only don't, there's only a couple of things I don't know, so it's fine, I know everything. Whereas the irony is the person who's actually aware of so much, they're so woke to the marketing world or the science world, the program or whatever it is, they're more aware of what they don't know. And that confidence sometimes, that's, that's, you, you pick up on that element of it and you can actually make a false, um, you make a false conclusion about somebody because you think, oh, they don't know about that, they don't know about that. Well, that's actually because their knowledge base is so large, they're aware of what they don't know. Hmm. Um, so, you know, podcast is not the best medium. They're, they're, they're better demonstrated on a whiteboard. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it works. Have you, been, have you been caught out, wrongly assumed that someone who's come across as an expert actually is, as opposed to um, someone who's just blissfully ignorant? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I've met a few investors along the way. So rather than speak about founders, I think investors mm. tend to be ignorant slash arrogant. You know, like investors a lot of the time misinterpret the soapbox that they've purchased to speak to the founder with authority as their expertise. So what I mean by that is if I if I'm a founder and an investor is going to give me fifty thousand dollars, well I kind of have to listen to everything they say. I don't, I don't agree with it, but I have to listen. If that same person turned up, so let's just say it's an investment banker, and then they're going to start pitching me marketing ideas. And you kind of go, well, okay, but you're an investment banker. What do you really know about whatever it is, marketing swimsuits to toddlers or something? You know, it's like way outside of your area of expertise. But I have to listen because you give me $50,000 towards the company. So I'm going to pay you the respect that you've basically purchased. And they misinterpret that. Whereas if exactly the same person and it's typically a sort of white, late 50-year-old male Australian. Like it's just the, the, the privileged life that they've been able to exist, uh, exist in. I've got to be careful because I'm falling into that privileged life, so I've got to be more aware of these things myself. But it's this idea that they're, they're always right, they're always listened to. And yet if that same person was to come in and just randomly start pitching me marketing techniques for toddler swimsuits, I just look and go, you're nuts. Like I would never listen to you. And so I think the, these investors become 
blissfully ignorant to what they don't know because they, they understand marketing to be just their interpretation of the world. And actually, the art form of marketing is superior empathy and the empathy to align yourself with what the customer's wants, needs and desires are. And so it's almost the single way that you can switch the difference between a real marketer and somebody who just has ideas is that ability to put yourself in the customer's shoes, to have that empathy to go, this is how I would interpret it. This is how sorry, they will interpret it. This is what they need. This is what their wants, desires, fears, etc. are. Therefore, I can sculpt the product around it. What you'll find about the blissfully ignorant people on marketing is that they will look at it and go, oh, I would never buy that or you know, and you hear these ridiculous statements like, oh, advertising doesn't work on me. You think, well, of course it does. You know, <laughs> you're sort of showing yourself up there. So I don't know if it's the best example, but it's the one I encounter the most in startup land is this idea that, you know, investors feel like they can give advice on everything. And so, you know, I'm often finding myself arguing with investors on marketing techniques. And you just go, Do you know what? I want to say to them, you know what, you worry about the money and the mm. business proposition. I'm not telling you how to manage cash flow. I'm not carrying, telling you how to work on you know, convertible notes or any other facet you know, the valuation of the company. Leave the marketing stuff to me. <laughs> I don't. I tend to be. I tend to judge silently in my head. <laughs> but it's, a, it's, it's, it's useful advice, I think, because like you said, it's the, the money definitely gives you, as an investor, privilege to, to say what you want within yeah, all... You, yeah, you, you basically you bought your ticket, mm. you know, you bought your soapbox, and so the founder's going to have to listen to you. But you know, as a founder, you've really got to stop and say, "Wouldn't even some of these investors? I mean, they're good, but even the best investors in the world, there's always going to be better domain name experts, like not domain name, but domain experts. So you've just got to check every single aspect of it and go, "Well, yeah, you're great at this, but that doesn't make you great at something else." And you know, you you can get totally tricked by that, and it's hard. Like you know, these these are They've got, they've kind of had success, but you know, I don't always measure success by money. Like the best advice isn't going to come to the person with the most amount of money. Sure, you know, business success and business acumen tend to align. There's a correlation with the money that you've got, but not necessarily. You know, there's plenty of people with terrible business acumen that make a lot of money. So, you know, yes, there's a correlation, but I'd always check and then definitely check on the domain expertise of the person so if they've made their money in pharmaceuticals fantastic that's what they call smart money so if you're if you're dealing in pharmaceuticals and they've made money in pharmaceuticals well that's smart investment money right so you get their money and you get their domain expertise but if you're dealing in pharmaceuticals and they made their money in real estate well you know is that smart money or is that dumb money probably closer to the dumb money side of the equation that's uh it's uh, it's, it's great advice to sort of check the credentials of the investors you're dealing with as a as a startup or a founder who who, who need additional capital to, to move to you know to progress it to the next stage i guess it's easy to sort of look at just look at the money alone you know whether it be 50 100 200k and sort of get lost in what you're going to do with all that money as opposed to seeing what expertise the uh, the investor can give you as well along that journey yeah and and look you'll find savvy investors are aware of their own knowledge shortfalls so a really savvy investor will often look at the other investors and say okay well i like the sound of this but who else is investing and who are they and if they see investors with domain expertise they'll often just settle up next to them and say look i'll i'll co-invest along with you so whatever you invest you know how much are you putting in you know a hundred thousand okay well i'll put in 25 and i'll just keep following you so every single time you put in 100 i'll put in 25 if you put in 200 i'll put in 50 and they just let that person become the lead investor because they've got the domain expertise and they just sit back and say you know i I value you i value your expertise do you have that one sort of investor representative on a board so to speak and that should be the person not the person putting the most it should be the person with the most expertise in the area Mm -hmm. so you will find savvy investors will just they'll back anything if one of their co-investors it's in their domain so you know, I used pharmaceuticals before. The, a good investment circle, good angel circle, will have domain experts in different areas, and they'll be the lead investor. And the other guys will just guys or girls will just be um, silent. They'll just come along and go, "Look, I'm trusting your overall business acumen," and go with that. Do Do you think um, Shark Tank's a good example of that in terms of where there's been co investment by um, <laughs> those on the show? <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, Shark Tank's a TV show. It, it, it's not that far off in terms of the pitch. Like the negotiation stuff's a bit far-fetched because it, it doesn't really work like that. But um, but the pitch is fine. Like the pitch is the right way. In terms of the co-investment, 
not really. Um, every now and then, if you watch the show, you will see people go, look, I mean, if it's a tech, if it's a dot-com company come in, comes in and they pitch, and Steve Baxter just turns, just goes, no, I'm out straight away, you know it's going to die. Like, it, it's unlikely the odds are going to follow in if he's ruled out a dot-com starter. Um, the only way it's going to change is if it happens to be right in somebody else's niche. But generally speaking, there's some respect on that. I think oh, the co-investment, I'm not so sure. I think a lot of the time there's a bit of ego that goes on <laughs> in that show. It's not, mm. it's not, it's not that real. But look, at least with Shark Tank, I think it's a bit more realistic than um, you know another show. Like you think about The Apprentice. I mean, you know, at least the people on Shark Tank, I think, are real business people. I've, I've never really met any of the people. Well, I've never met any of the people on The Apprentice. Um, or the panels, but I've never been impressed with the people that get behind the desk. So I think there's a difference there. So I think it's good to learn your pitching of Shark Tank, but once the negotiations start, I think you know that's that's where realistic expectations drop away. Um, but if you've ever pitched to a room of business angels, and you know there's Brisbane angels, there's Melbourne angels, there's Sydney angels, there's Angel New York angels, every every city around the world has an angel group. So it's actually pretty similar to that. They just sort of sit there in silence and they ask you a few pointed questions at the end of it. The biggest difference is, I think, in the real world, the angels then, when they um, deliberate, they tend to kick you out of the room and they do it amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. It's not so much for the show for the camera. So, um, yeah, you know, it's not a million miles off. It, it does help people get some ideas around valuations a little bit. It's commercial television, right? So it's going to be entertaining. <laughs> sure, so it's got to have some, uh, some theatrics. E- exactly, so... Uh, a question I'd like to ask all, uh, all guests is, what's your definition of the grind? Oh, the grind? Oh, hmm. I almost need you to define what you mean by the grind. Well, I think, um, I mean, previous, previous guests, it's, it's um, I guess, uh, up for interpretation. I think the grind, in my mind, it's that willingness to, um, to do the things that aren't directly related to what you love. Um, and to push through, and it tends to be repeated. So, look, I mean, like a sporting analogy, I used to do competitive level swimming when I was younger. Yeah, and the grind is the training, and that's got phenomenal grind. Like, you know, to get up every morning at 5 o'clock and do six kilometres of swimming and keeping your heart rate, you know, above 160, close to 180, sometimes pushing to 200, and do that 11 sessions a week. I mean, that's, that's an incredible grind. In the same way, you know, doing the daily commute, you know, <laughs> I don't do that. Like I work from home most of the time. If I'm traveling into the city, it's to meet with clients. And, you know, I'll usually book an Uber because I like to answer emails at the same time. So I think, I think there's a lot of people, the grind for me is the, the things that you need to do to get through. So in my current life, my grind might be doing my tax returns. It might be just, you know, the diligence behind sort of the company work, but the actual, that you try to put as much, the more, the more you can put, that you enjoy and the less grind you've got, I kind of feel like you, you're reaching that work utopian goal that you want to do. So, you know, I no longer commute to work. I no longer necessarily have a boss. I've got clients, but I haven't got a, a hierarchy and clients. So, that, that, yeah, to me, they're the grind. So I've, I've kind of removed a lot of those aspects. And so when I do, you know, it, it makes life a bit a bit more fun. But at the same time, like, you know, you, it's a it's a privilege and, and you've kind of had to earn it. So like you said at the start, I've done 20, 21 years of marketing grind to get to the stage where I feel like I've got enough, enough expertise to kind of break free and go, hey, I'm just happy to stand on my own two feet and say, it's me, it's Jared, you're paying me. There's nobody else. There's no great hierarchy. There's no great system. There's no great processes or corporate or shiny meeting rooms or cookies or coffee or gifts or anything. It's just me. And you kind of earn that right, I guess, by pushing through and doing the grind. And, you know, for me, the grind is the, the stuff that you do that you don't enjoy. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people spend 95% of their time in the grind for the 5% of love. I think if the world could spend more time, yeah, having to grind away less mm-hmm. um, and doing more of what they love, then, you know, I think everyone would be a bit happier. But maybe that's an impossible utopia to ever reach. So there's probably an element of, of always grinding away. I don't know if that, it's the same as everybody else. Maybe, maybe no, no, no. It's um, it's it's. I, I love hearing everyone's um, everyone's different interpretation of what it means. It's, I guess I see it as being a bit. I see it as being a bit negative. I look here. If I say one thing about it, is if if the um, as long as the stuff you're doing, like I see the grind as being negative. So if the stuff that you do that you love outweighs the grind, then you're in a good place. The minute you feel like you, you're having to grind away more day in, day out, and there's very little upside, that's probably when you need to make a change and do something else. And, and you know, go back to that sporting analogy, right? <laughs> you might grind 
away in the swimming pool for five years to get that one utopian moment where you get to go to the Olympics, that's fine. But that's you know that's the trade off you're going to make. So I don't think most most people aren't built to wait that long for the reward. I know I definitely wasn't. I realised I know the risk of the risk of not going to the Olympics and the risk of grinding away every day, every week of the year in a swimming pool and never realising some great pinnacle of sport is almost not worth the risk. So I dropped that and and, uh, and thought, oh, actually, I'll go out and have an actual social life rather than playing bubbles on the water. <laughs> it's um, I guess it's also about enjoying the process as well, not not looking to that that end outcome and focusing all your attention on that, but sort of enjoying what you do on a day-to-day basis and focusing yeah. on that more. Yeah, look, and, and, you know, I guess that's that thing where if you can see what you're doing as part of a bigger picture, then that makes sense. You know, from a founder's point of view, you can't solve a problem. For other businesses, it can just be about doing something great, you know, something you can stand by. So as long as I think if, if the grind is driving you towards a greater objective, then that's fine. If the grind is driving you towards a job with a bigger grind, then, then you've got a bit of a problem, right? So, and that's the, that's the rationalization that we need to do. And, and uh, I think a lot of people post rationalize these things for a while. I was talking to someone recently who's involved with a lot of um, senior lawyers when they do sort of exit interviews with partners as they're leaving law firms, they said it's it's hardly ever a, a fun experience. They're often really, really depressed at the end of it. You think, yes, but you've reached the top and they, they're almost always, this wasn't what I imagined for my life. It didn't work out the way I wanted it to. And you kind of go, well, what did you want? And it was usually something completely different, but they got stuck. Mm. And they got confused between working hard just for the sake of working hard and working hard towards something. I think if you lose sight of that big picture, you can become very resentful later in life when you realize you've been grinding away, but you didn't actually, we're actually doing it for a reason. You did it because you thought you had to. Look, maybe I'm a little bit philosophical about that kind of stuff, but I think, you know, the more you get into the startup space, there's a lot of work now done around around founder health and the idea of mental health and and what you do. And I think um, in some ways it's pioneering, you know, forward this idea of, you know, happiness of mind, particularly around founders because they're so susceptible to depression and, and, and anxiety. But, you know, I think a lot of the stuff that happens will start to spread out into the broader world. And I think it's the, the idea of people doing jobs where they get in when they're 18 and start working for a company and then retire with the golden watch, you know, 40 years later become almost the point where that won't ever happen again. I think, you know, anyone who's 18 now going into the workforce, I'd be shocked if there's anyone who's actually going to be in the same job. It just, it's just not the way it's done anymore. So... I think you've got to be a little bit more self-aware of how you're going to grind away on a daily basis. Yeah, and sort of know, know where you want to go, you know, 20, 30, 40 years' time from where you are now. Yeah, exactly. Um, that bigger, like you like yeah. said before, having the bigger picture, but also focusing on the details as well. Both are important. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, speaking of lawyers, you know, they often get in there to try to change the world and, and bring justice to the world, and they end up spending the vast majority of their life running accounts and keeping clients happy, and they kind of stop and go, well, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I don't. I don't think, you know, a royal banking commission was my idea of of of, of the pinnacle of my career. I didn't didn't really fix anything, and um, and that was my that was my real realization a year ago when I realized I was doing corporate marketing, and I just sort of looked and went, but that's not what I want to do. I don't I don't want to do great marketing for monopolistic companies. I want to do great marketing for companies that want to change the world, and that was that real real realization that I'd much rather be working for the, you know, the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars than, than necessarily the Empire. And the Empire might have had way more equipment and better stuff to do and they had all the kit and it looked better. But in practice, you go, no, I, this is what I want to do. I'd much rather tinker away at the smaller ships and, and be on the side of good and try to create a better world. So, um, you know, hence I made the jump. And, you know, look, is, is the salary, is the income as consistent? Yeah, of course not. But... I go to work most days with a smile on my face, um, not least because my commute to work is, you know, from the kitchen to my <laughs> office, which is about three metres. Mm. No, it's about nil. It's, it's, um, it's great advice when one's sort of in, in, a, um, in an office job and not understanding why they are where they are. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I think I've... Um, I think I've kind of checked that part now and I think I don't know if I can ever go back to it. It'll, it'll take a... Um, a hell of a charismatic founder of a company to get me totally bought into what they're trying to achieve, that utopian problem they're trying to solve. And I'm not ruling it out. I think it'll happen at some point. Someone will be doing something and I just go, I totally believe in why you are doing this. Mm. I'm all in. I want to be part of it. But 
you know, and it, look, it might even be me. I might find something, but I, I don't think I will anymore. I think I'm much more about if I can help a lot of people, a lot of founders make a lot of changes, I'm going to be happy with that. I, I can't see myself going back. Even though my career has been dual track, even though I've kind of gone from startup to agency and startup to agency and back again, I'm kind of hoping that this this is the last time I make the change because it, it, it won't be, but you know, <laughs> now this keeps me sane. You've had a rebirth, yeah, so to speak. Yes, totally. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the show. Where can people find more about you and um, you and Fractal? Yeah, so um, I mean, you, can, you can read the website, which is fractal.com.au, and, and that's that was my brain dump from twelve months ago. I tend to be better with um, on LinkedIn now, so you can follow me. It's just Jared Doyle on LinkedIn. I'm sure you'll see me. I'm, I'm pretty good. I usually respond to people pretty quickly. I almost use LinkedIn like a messenger now. You can follow me on Twitter at Jarbot, which is G E R B O T, but I don't think my Twitter's anywhere near as good as my LinkedIn. Or if you're totally inspired by marketing and you want to get in that, I I do a uh, a bad podcast where I try to give marketing tips to people. So you can find that on the fractal.com.au website as well. So I'm I'm you know a bit like you, Adrian. I'm I'm working my way through. I'm trying to solve problems uh, for founders. I'm trying to work out how to do podcasting and microphones and sound checks and all that stuff <laughs> and it's it, there's a lot more you appreciate there's a lot more behind the scenes than i think probably comes across when you when you're listening to it so um kudos for you you've done a lot more than i have i don't think i'll ever catch you but i, I hope to get the <laughs> as, as a percentage at some point in the future <laughs> we should uh we should catch up for coffee when you're free i'm in brisbane as well so yeah definitely i um yeah there's always you've got to continue these conversations for a long time and <laughs> Even before the show, we've had trading you know, techniques, and and you meet somebody who's been doing podcasting for a while, and they're like, "Oh, I found this great new pop filter for my microphone." You go, "I had this three podcasts in." I went, "What's a pop filter?" I'm way behind here, so I've learned what that is now, and I've got one, so I'm feeling pretty pro. Yeah, there's nothing, uh, nothing worse than editing all the pops that occur uh, through the interview. Uh, so hopefully, I'll fix that for you, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> Thanks so much. Had a great time. Um, chatting to Jared. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Would really appreciate it if you left a rating. For more inspiring stories and advice, follow Stories Behind the Grind on Instagram and Facebook.